This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come to you in prayer, we really pray that you help us to understand the great importance of Acts chapter 15 and what it speaks to us today of what is essential for salvation. And we pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My father used to say to me when I was young, quite regularly actually, that there is a sucker born every minute. Right? And what he meant was that there were always going to be gullible people or people who were deceived. People who were being taken advantage of all the time. And of course, his message to me was, you know, don't be that sucker. Now, then he would then tell me about relatives or friends, you know, who had been lost uh, of some business or some cheated or something. And I think it was very tragic when I heard these stories. But how much more tragic it is when you actually read of people who do not just lose material things, but lose salvation or eternal life. Because when it comes to salvation, eternal life, that is the worst possible thing that you can be suckered off. Worse than being bankrupt, worse than getting cancer, worse than being paralyzed is to lose your salvation. And today, in Acts chapter 15, we learn how to inoculate ourselves not to lose that salvation. Because unfortunately, many people do lose their salvation. So at the beginning of Acts, as we've been going along in our series, Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. But before he went to heaven, he promised his disciples that he would continue to work through them in this world. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is here on this slide, Jesus promised them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've seen that Jesus' promise has been fulfilled. So the gospel was preached in Jerusalem, and then it moved out into Judea, to the Jews, and then from Judea into Samaria, where the, uh, I guess, the Samaritans, who were not really Jewish in terms of practice, but in terms of half-breeds, were also converted. And then very significantly, what happened next was it went from Joppa to Caesarea to the centurion who was the first of the many Gentiles to become Christians. And then we saw last week, oh, oh you're not doing a map. You're supposed to see the map, see? There's no effect. Okay, keep going, keep going. Okay, next one. Okay, next one, keep going. Okay, don't worry about that. Okay, so then we saw that the gospel went from Caesarea to Antioch, where the Gentile church was founded. And then last week we saw that the first missionary journey from Antioch took place and took the gospel even further out. Now, if you turn to me to chapter 14, verse 28, you see that Paul and, uh, and uh, Barnabas, they went back to Antioch and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So they're back there in Antioch. The church is stable, the church is growing, everything is going well. But in chapter 15, verse 1, we read some disturbing news because it says in verse 1 that certain men or certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So these people were Christians. 
they were Jewish Christians. And they were coming to the Gentile church which had been developed, built, grown up in Antioch. And they didn't come for a holiday, but they were coming to teach. And they were teaching that salvation came with the gospel, but also with circumcision. Now, as we've been going through the book of Acts, this is very significant and very different from what the disciples and the apostles had been teaching. Because all along they had been teaching that salvation, the gospel was salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Right? That was the simple formula. We can see that in Acts chapter 10, <clears throat> in the preaching of the apostle Peter, when he taught Cornelius in Caesarea. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. Again, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul taught in his first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13, verse 38, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. So these Jewish Christians who had come from Judea up to Antioch were teaching a new teaching, a gospel plus Right? The gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus was not alone. They required the gospel plus circumcision. And they said that this was necessary for salvation. Right? They made that very clear. Okay? That you cannot be saved without circumcision. Now, this is at the crux of what the church is about. Right? This is the heart of the gospel. Because the church... And the gospel message is fundamentally about salvation. Now that's very important. Uh, when I was on holiday in the UK, I went to a Christian bookshop and I bought this uh, book, next slide, called English Lessons, right? And it was about this woman who was a daughter of a pastor in America. She'd grown up in a Christian school. All her friends were Christian. She went to a Christian college. And uh, then she decided to do her master's in Oxford many years later. And she had a crisis of faith. She realized, apparently, that non-Christians could be happier than she was. And she realized that non-Christians, some of them were just as passionate about doing good things as she was. And then so she had a crisis of faith. Then I was thinking to myself, actually, the Bible never says that as a Christian you have to be happier than non-Christians, right? Or that non-Christians must be sadder than you. Or that somehow non-Christians cannot also have a desire to want to do good, moral, ethical things. The gospel is all about salvation, not about happiness or doing good things. And this is at the heart of what they were arguing about in Acts chapter 15. Salvation, what is essential for salvation? Is it faith in Jesus Christ alone? Or is it faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision? So if you look at the map, Paul makes his way down to Jerusalem, where he wants to meet up with the leaders there, the apostles. And when he goes there, if you look at verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised, 
But not only must they be circumcised in verse 15, they must obey the law of Moses. So once you have gospel plus one thing, it's very easy to have gospel plus something else. So, the apostles get together in Jerusalem and they have to decide what is absolutely necessary for salvation. What are the salvation essentials? Gospel alone or gospel plus? Well, the answer came in verse 6 to 12. After discussing, this is what they said. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. Now, in verse 6 to 12, Peter says, let's look at God's actions. And he turns them back to Acts chapter 10. He says, you know, remember what happened to me in Acts chapter 10? That God did this supernatural sign through me. He chose me through my lips to speak the message to the Gentiles. And how did he do it? He sent Peter three visions. Remember three times the, the, the blanket was opened before him and three times he saw all these animals and three times he heard God say, Do not call anything impure that I have made clean. And God told him to follow the servants from Joppa to Caesarea to speak the message to the Gentiles. The second supernatural sign that God had made was that he chose the Gentiles undeniably by sending the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. And <clears throat> because of those two supernatural things that have been done, verse 9 to 11, Peter says, This is the lesson that we have learnt from what God did through me during that incident in Caesarea. He said, Because of what God has shown us very clearly, God has made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do we try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So there are positive and there are negative lessons or implications of what happened to Peter. The positive is that for the Jew and the Gentile, they are both saved by faith and grace alone. The essentials of salvation are faith from the heart, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The negative lesson is that the law cannot save. Because the law, rather than being something that can save, is like a yoke 
So you know what a yoke is? It's not the yoke of the egg, right? <clears throat> the yoke is what you put on the neck of cattle, which is used to sort of, you know, move them around so that they can do the work that they need to do. It's, it's something burdensome, something heavy. And the law is like that. The law is like a yoke, unbearable, a burden that even the Jews could not bear and could not be used as a way to salvation. In fact, Peter goes on further. If you look at the passage carefully, next slide, it says that by saying that salvation, you need to add circumcision and the law is actually testing God. Testing God is a very dangerous thing to do. You never want to test God. right? It is the same word, testing God, that Ananias and Sapphira was, were accused of doing, which led to their death. So you remember back in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold the land and they, they kept back part of the money, but they pretended to give everything? Well, that was testing God. See, look at what it says there in verse 7. When the wife came in, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Then Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who bury your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down and died. See, that's... That's what you risk doing when you say to people, you need the gospel plus. Whenever you add something else to faith, whenever you add something else to grace, you're testing God. You are testing God and putting yourself at risk. But that's not all that um, <clears throat> they learned from. They didn't just learn from the experience of Peter because James spoke up next. Now, who is James? James was uh, the brother of Jesus Christ. So if you look with me, it says there in verse 13, when they had finished, James, the brother of Jesus, spoke up, one of the apostles. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So here we see that James takes a different approach. He doesn't take an approach from the supernatural experience, but he takes the approach from God's word. He looks at God's word from Amos chapter 9. Amos was written 700 years before Jesus. And he says, look, in the book of Amos, God had promised that the Gentiles would be saved. The Gentiles would be brought into God's kingdom. They would find their way into a relationship with God. And he says that by forcing the, the Gentiles to follow the law to be circumcised would be to make it difficult for the Gentiles. It would be going against God's 
plan for them. You like putting obstacles in their way. And as a result, we should not be putting this requirement on them. That they should be circumcised or follow the law of Moses. Now, as we come to the end of the discussion, it's very clear that the decision had been made. Salvation is by faith alone, grace alone. There is no gospel plus, there is no circumcision, there is no law. This is very important for us today. I remember someone saying to me last year that actually it doesn't matter what their church teaches, but what's important to this person is that they have a good choir. Some other people tell me, you know, it doesn't matter so much what the church teaches as long as they have good fellowship. It doesn't matter so much as long as sermons are entertaining. Now, when people say those sort of things, it reminds me of what my father said, right? Because you are a prime candidate of being a sucker. To be gullible and to be deceived because you are the sort of person who will lose salvation. Because the church is not about choir, the church is not about entertainment, the church is not just about fellowship, the church is about fundamentally salvation. And salvation comes from the gospel alone, the gospel of faith alone and grace alone. And it's get easy to get confused because, you know, the world we live in, whenever you think you get something more, you think it's better, right? So, you know, uh, what was it? I was talking to my son the other day. You know, it's just like when you go to this restaurant and you buy something, you buy one dish and you get another dish for free, right? So you think more is better, right? One plus one is two, right? It's better than one. But when it comes to the gospel, one plus one is not more, it's nothing. The gospel plus something else doesn't equal more, it equals nothing. So you know, if you have the gospel plus you have to speak in tongues, that's not better, that's worse. If you have the gospel plus, you know, you have to be baptized in a certain way, that's not better, that's worse. Or the gospel plus, you know, you have to belong to a certain domination, that's worse. So I remember reading many years ago, right, you just think of the yoke or the burden and the obstacle that Acts chapter 15 thinks about. So I remember, if you look at this person, do you know who the person is? This is uh, Phil Jackson. Okay, you all all don't know who Phil Jackson is. Okay, you all probably know Michael Jordan, right? Okay, so he was the coach of Michael Jordan. He won six titles with uh, the Bulls, Michael Jordan. He was also the coach of Kobe Bryant. You all know who Kobe Bryant is? Okay, so he won five titles with Kobe Bryant. He's won 11 NBA championships as coach. I mean, he's won the most championships ever. Now, when he was 18 years old, uh, I read his autobiography. He wanted to become a Christian. He went to church. But his church had a gospel plus. His church said, salvation is gospel plus. You must be able to speak in tongues. And he was saying in his autobiography where he spent the whole night praying earnestly with tears in his eyes that he would have the gift of speaking in tongues. Morning came, sunlight shone through his window, and he still couldn't speak in tongues. So from that moment on, he said, I'm not a Christian. And up to today, he's not a Christian. But that's so sad, isn't it? That's so tragic. Because he was a Christian the moment he believed in Jesus Christ. He didn't need to speak in tongues 
But because of what his church taught him, he is not a Christian today. That is the danger of Gospel Plus. Now, if we have learned anything from today, it is you cannot add anything to faith or to grace. And that is the danger that the church successfully avoided then. But something interesting happens in verse 20, right? the, the, the rest of the section, because it says to them in verse 20, instead we, sh- we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted from idols, from sexual morality, from the meat of strangled animals, from blood, four specific things. Now, uh, when I was in theological college, you, you know, if you enter your fourth year, which I didn't, you have to write a 3,000 word thesis on something of, I think maybe it's in 5,000 words. And my friend wrote 5,000 words on this verse, right? What on earth are these four things and why were they here? But I, I won't go 5,000 words with you. I'll just explain it to you quickly. I think the, uh, the key to understanding why they had these four things comes in the next section, right? For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So the Gentiles are asked to obey these four specific requirements because Moses had been taught from the earliest times in all the synagogues. So there are two ways to really understand this. One is ceremonially. So because the Jews had been taught these specific things in the synagogues from the earliest age, for the sake of fellowship between Gentiles and Jews, the Gentiles were admonished not to do these things from eating all this blood and all the stuff and maybe the sexual immorality had to do with marriage in particular, so that it wouldn't affect their fellowship with the Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. The second way of understanding it is morally. Right, so, because Moses had been preached right from the very beginning, morally the Gentiles were to be very cautious about going back to their pagan past, their pagan way of doing things, of worship, of temple prostitution and things like that, for the sake of holy living. So ceremonially and morally, these things were to be kept for the sake of fellowship, for holy living and making a clean break from the past. But you notice that these were not salvation issues. These were godliness, holiness, fellowship and love issues. So as a result, in verse 30 to 32, when the message was actually brought back to the churches in Antioch and other places, you read in verse 30, So the men went off, and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they preached, where they and many others taught and preached the word. So what happens here is that the gospel message alone encouraged and strengthened the church. It wasn't a burden. It wasn't a yoke. It wasn't an obstacle. 
But something strange happens in chapter 16, verse 1 to 5, right? And chapter 16, verse 1 to 5 is such a strange section that some people actually question whether it should actually be in the book of Acts at all. Because in verse 1 to 5, Paul does something completely opposite to chapter 15. Paul came to Derby in verse 1, and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Tippity lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who had lived in the area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Can you not see that this is a weird, weird passage? Because Paul had been fighting and fighting and fighting, saying, no, no circumcision, no circumcision. Faith alone, grace alone. And here, he has Timothy circumcised. And after Timothy is circumcised, he and Paul are going around preaching the message from Jerusalem, saying, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Isn't that really weird? Why is Paul like this, right? He's saying, yes, circumcise Timothy. No, don't circumcise because it's not a gospel essential. What is happening here? Well, it seems that as we look at chapter 16, if you look very specifically, Paul circumcises Timothy not for salvation. He circumcises Timothy because... Timothy's father was a Greek, so he wasn't circumcised when he was young. But he circumcised Timothy so that he would be more acceptable for evangelism and for fellowship with the Jews in his evangelistic journeys. So for Paul, it's very, very distinct, right? If you look up, I put this diagram, when it comes to gospel essentials, he's completely like a pillar unmoving. He's he's not going to move an inch for you. But when it comes to evangelism and fellowship, he is like a willow or a reed, right? You know, he's willing to sway, he's willing to move, he's willing to make compromises, and he's willing to, to be able to do whatever it takes to make the gospel and fellowship and love reach out to people. Now, this is a very important distinction between Fixed in terms of doctrine, flexible in terms of fellowship and love and evangelism. Because I think that in the world that we live in today, we've got it all mixed up, all jumbled up. You see, the problem for many churches and Christians today is we get it the other way around. When it comes to doctrine, we are flexible. But when it comes to fellowship and evangelism, we are rigid and fixed. So within some churches, they're very rigid when it comes to the form and the structures, you know. You must always wear a collar, must always wear a gown, must always wear a stole. The liturgy must never change. Cannot change the type of songs we sing, cannot change the words that we use. Doesn't matter that they're an obstacle to evangelism or fellowship or love to other Christians or unchurched people coming into the church, but they must never change. I've been to churches where 
You know, they still have that, okay, we're going to sing song number 475 today. And then, you know, you've got to get some book, which, you know, you've got like all these books in front of you, right? So you don't know which one you take. So you grab the book, then you look at all the different numbers. You know, they've been doing that for decades. I mean, it's hard enough for me as a Christian trying to figure out if you're a non-Christian, you'll be completely lost, right? What's the red book, the black book, and you know, all these different color books in front of you? But at the same time, some of these churches which are so rigid when it comes to the form and the structures are completely flexible when it comes to the doctrine. They have all sorts of things added on to the doctrine. Speaking in tongues, good works, all sorts of things. The saddest uh, time of my holiday when I went overseas was when I visited the University of Oxford University Church of St. Mary the Virgin. Okay, it seems very long. I just call it St. Mary's Church now. This is the official church of the University of Oxford, right? So I went in there. It's a tourist attraction. There are people walking through there all the time, right? And when it comes to the form and the structures and the sternals, very rigid. Everybody, you know, they, 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 the, the, the pastors still wear the, the stoles and the gowns and the collars. It's a high church liturgy, right? So the liturgy is very fixed, very fixed format. They have a church choir, you know, everything is very, very rigid. I'm sure they've done it for years and years. So I was walking there with all these tourists. I was thinking, you know, wow, there's so many tourists here who come from all over the world. What a great opportunity to evangelize, right? You know, you'd have like two ways to live in every language or something, or like Gideon's Bibles, wherever. But there's nothing there. So I went to the gift shop, you know, because the church has a gift shop. But instead, they were selling these books. The Christian atheist. I was like, that's a, that's, those two words cannot belong together, right? How can you have the Christian atheist? I mean, the atheist Christian. It just, this doesn't work, right? And it, uh, the subtitle is Belonging Without Believing. I hope none of you believe in that, okay? That you can belong to a church without believing. And then I read the back, uh, next, the click thing. And talks about how this book is to validate the Christian atheist position as a source of meaning and, and value. I say, how can you, it's, there's no value in being a Christian atheist, there's no meaning in being a Christian atheist, it's worthless, it's meaningless. And now I was surprised to read that the guy who wrote this book, no wonder this book was here, I was thinking, why is this book here? It's because... It was written by the pastor who's been the pastor there for 25 years. So here's a church which is completely fixed in terms of its liturgy, its form, its dress, but yet in its doctrine has completely moved away from Acts 15. Not only is there no faith alone, there is no faith at all. right? I mean, there is no grace, there's nothing. There's a, it's about belonging to a church without really being a Christian that somehow... That is, uh, as the guy writes, that is a, it validates you that somehow it is an appropriate position that you can be in at church. And what made it more sad was on the wall of that particular church, there is a plaque there. Because you know, Oxford was the place where during the Reformation, some of the very, very key people uh, in uh, the, the Reformation were actually burned uh, for their belief in the Bible. They, they refused to move from uh, the gospel. And they died at the stake. And that plaque was there. And I was thinking, isn't that such an irony? 
that the church where there's a plaque commemorating, commemorating these people who, who believed and died on the gospel alone, here in the church they're actually preaching that you can be a Christian atheist. So I think as we end there, today's lesson is very important. That you must only have the gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ and salvation by grace alone. There is no gospel plus. There is no gospel plus which adds anything. It's actually a minus. And as we look at this passage, the warning for us is don't be gullible. Don't be deceived. If anybody comes to you and tries to add anything to the gospel of Jesus and faith in Him alone, then you need to run far away from that person because that person is trying to deceive you and steal your salvation away. Even if you have to die for your faith, like those martyrs did, then it is worthwhile because the church and the gospel is about salvation and in faith alone, in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will learn the important lesson of your word in Acts chapter 15, that there is no gospel plus, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in our hearts in him alone, adding to it, it is a negative. Dear Father, we realize that in this world, there are so many people who have lost their faith, lost salvation because they've added to the gospel. And we pray that we will not be one of those people and our church will not be one of those churches. We pray also that we may learn the deeper, more profound lesson that for the sake of fellowship, for love and evangelism, that we may be flexible, but yet in our belief in the gospel, we will stay firm and rigid. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.